We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new amazing story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. He had no idea how long he'd been there. After a while, even the deepest sorrow falters. Even despair loses its scalpel edge. He straightened up and stood. Still alive, he thought. Veins running without point, bones and muscle and tissue still alive with no purpose at all. He turned away with a sigh, closing the door behind him quietly and almost tripped over the body he'd ejected. He looked incredulously at the man. He was dead, really dead. But how could that be? Already the man looked and smelled as though he'd been dead for days. His mind began to churn with excitement. Something had killed the vampire, something brutally effective. Of course! Daylight! A bolt of self-accusation struck him. To know for five months they remained indoors by day and never once make the connection. He closed his eyes, appalled by his own stupidity. The rays of the sun, the infrared and ultraviolet, it had to be them. But why? His thoughts broke off as he leaped to another conclusion— The sun's rays must have done something to their blood. Was it possible that all things bore relation to the blood? The garlic, the cross, the stake? He had to do a lot of reading, a lot of research. A new desire had seized him. Robert Neville started the car and raced up the street, pulling up before the first house he came to. He ran up the pathway and through the door. He found a woman in the bedroom. Without hesitating, he jerked back the covers and dragged her down the stairs. Her eyes were still closed, but she gasped and tried to writhe out of his grip. Usually he felt a twinge when he realized that, but for some affliction, they were the same as him. But an experimental fervor had seized him, and he thought of nothing else. Even so, he shuddered at the sound of horror she made when he threw her on the sidewalk. She lay twisting helplessly. He stood there and watched her die. In a few minutes she stopped moving, and her hands uncurled like white blossoms on the cement. It was true, then. He didn't need the stakes. He found a better method. He drove off and parked at a supermarket where he sat drinking a can of tomato juice, his mind racing. How did he know the woman was really dead? How could he know until sunset? Now he'd have to go all the way back and find her, and he wasn't even sure where the house was. He glanced at his watch. Three o'clock. Plenty of time to get back before they came. 
It took him about a half an hour to relocate the house. The woman was still in the same position on the sidewalk. Putting on his gloves, he lowered the back gate of the station wagon and walked over to the woman. He dragged her to the station wagon and tossed her in. Then he closed the gate and took off his gloves. He held up the watch and looked at it. Three o'clock, plenty of time to... He jerked up the watch and held it against his ear, his heart suddenly jumping. The watch had stopped. His fingers shook as he turned the ignition key. His hands gripped the wheel rigidly as he made a tight U-turn and started back towards his house. What a fool he'd been! It must have taken at least an hour to reach the cemetery. He must have been in the crypt for hours. Then all that time spent going to get the woman, going to the market, drinking the tomato juice, then going back to get the woman again. What time was it? Cold fear poured through his veins at the thought of them all waiting for him at his house. Oh, my God, and he'd left the garage door open. The gasoline, the equipment, the generator. A groan cut itself off in his throat as he jammed the gas pedal to the floor and the station wagon leaped ahead, the speedometer moving steadily past the 75 mark. What if they were already waiting for him? How could he possibly get in the house? He forced himself to be calm. He mustn't go to pieces now. He had to keep himself in check. He'd get in. Don't worry. You'll get inside, he told himself. But he didn't see how. This is just fine, commented his mind. You go to all that trouble to preserve your existence, and then one day you just don't come back in time. Shut up, his mind snapped back at itself. But he could have killed himself for forgetting to wind his watch the night before. Don't bother killing yourself, his mind reflected. They'll be glad to do it for you. The silent streets flew past, and he kept looking from side to side to see if any of them were appearing in the doorways. It seemed as if it were already getting dark, but that could have been imagination. It couldn't be that late. It couldn't be. He'd just gone hurtling past the corner of Western and Compton when he saw one of them come running out of a building and shout at him. His heart contracted in an icy hand as the man's cry fluttered in the air behind the car. As he turned the corner with a screech of clinging tires, he couldn't hold back the gasp. They were all in front of the house, waiting. A sound of helpless terror filled his throat. He didn't want to die. He might have thought about it, even contemplated it, but he didn't want to die. Not like this. Now he saw them all turn their white faces at the sound of the motor. Some of them came running out of the open garage and his teeth ground together in impotent fury. What a stupid way to die! Now he saw them running straight towards the station wagon, and suddenly he knew he couldn't stop. He pressed down on the accelerator, and the car went plowing through them, knocking them aside like ten-pins. He felt the car frame jolt as it struck them, their screaming white faces flashing by his window, their cries chilling his blood. He saw in the rear-view mirror that they were all pursuing him. A plan caught hold in his mind, and he slowed down until the speed of the car fell to twenty miles an hour. He looked back and saw them gaining, saw their grayish-white faces approaching, their eyes fastened to his car, to him. 
He twitched with shock as a snarl sounded nearby and he saw the crazed face of Ben Cortman beside the car. Instinctively, his foot jammed down on the gas pedal, but his other foot slipped off the clutch and the car jolted and stalled. As he lunged forward to press the starter button, Ben Cortman clawed in at him, his hands like ice. Again, Neville pushed the button and the motor coughed into life as Ben Cortman's nails raked across his cheek. The pain made his hand jerk into a rigid fist which he drove into Cortman's face, sending him flailing as the car jolted forward and picked up speed. One of the others caught up and leapt at the rear of the car. For a minute he held on and Robert Neville could see his ashen face glaring insanely through the back window. He jerked the car over toward the curb and shook the man off, smashing violently into the side of a house. Robert Neville's heart was pounding so heavily now it seemed as if it would drive through his chest. He could feel blood trickling from his cheek, but no pain. Now he spun the station wagon around the corner, turning right, and then along the block to Haas Street. He slowed down a little until they came swarming around the corner like a pack of wolves. Then he pressed down on the accelerator. He'd have to take the chance that they were all following him. Would some of them guess what he was trying? He shoved down on the gas pedal and the station wagon jumped forward, racing up the block. He wheeled it around the corner, gunned up the short block to Cimarron and turned right again. His breath caught. There was no one in sight on his lawn. There was still a chance then. He'd have to let the station wagon go, though. There was no time to put it in the garage. He jerked the car to the curb and shoved the door open. As he raced around the edge of the car, he heard the billowing cry of their approach around the corner. He'd have to take a chance unlocking the garage. If he didn't, they might destroy the generator. They couldn't have had time to do it already. His footsteps pounded up the driveway to the garage. Neville! His body jerked back as Cortman came lunging out of the dark shadows of the garage. Cortman's body drove into his and almost knocked him down. He felt the cold, powerful hands clamp on his throat and smelled the fetid breath clouding over his face. The two of them went reeling back towards the sidewalk, and the white-fanged mouth went darting towards Neville's throat. Abruptly, he jerked his right fist and felt it drive into Cortman's throat. Up the block, the first of them came rushing and screaming around the corner. With a violent movement, Robert Neville grabbed Cortman by his long, greasy hair and sent him hurtling down the driveway until he rammed head-on into the side of the station wagon. Neville's eyes flashed up the street. No time for the garage. He dashed around the corner of the house and up to the porch. He skidded to a halt. Oh, God! The keys! With a terrified intake of breath, he spun and rushed back to the car. Cortman started up with a throaty snarl, but Neville drove his knee into the white face and knocked him back onto the sidewalk. Then he lunged into the car and jerked the keychain away from the ignition slot. As he scuttled back out of the car, one of them came leaping at him. He shrank back onto the car seat, and the man tripped over his legs and went sprawling heavily onto the sidewalk. Robert Neville pushed himself out, dashed across the lawn, then leaped onto the porch. He had to stop to find the right key, and another man came leaping up the porch. Steps! Neville was slammed against the house by the impact, and the hot, blood-thick breath was on him again, the bared mouth lunging at his throat. He drove his knee into the man's groin and then shoved the doubled-over man into yet another one rushing across the lawn. 
Neville dived for the door, unlocked it, slipped inside, and turned. As he slammed the door shut, an arm shot through the opening. He forced the door against it with all his strength until he heard the bones snap. Then he opened the door a little, shoved the broken arm out, and slammed the door. With trembling hands, he dropped the bar into place. Slowly, he sank to the floor and lay there in the darkness, his legs and arms like dead limbs on the floor. Outside, they howled and pummeled the door, shouting his name in a paroxysm of demented fury. They grabbed up bricks and rocks and hurled them against the house, and they screamed and cursed at him. He lay there listening to the thud of rocks and bricks against the house, listening to their howling. After a while, he struggled up to the bar. Half the whiskey he poured splashed onto the rug. He swallowed the contents of the glass and stood there shivering, holding onto the bar to support his wobbling legs. His breath slowed down. His chest stopped shuddering. He jumped as he heard the great crash outside. He ran to the peephole and looked out. A burst of rage filled him as he saw the station wagon on its side and saw them smashing in the windshield with bricks and stones, tearing open the hood and smashing the engine with their frenzied blows. Fury poured through him like a current of hot acid. Turning suddenly, he moved to the lamp and tried to light it. It didn't work. With a snarl, he turned and ran to the kitchen. The refrigerator was out. He ran from one dark room to another. The freezer was off. All the food would spoil. His house was a dead house. His rage-palsied hands ripped out the clothes from the bureau drawer until they closed on the loaded pistols. Racing through the dark living room, he knocked up the bar across the door and sent it clattering to the floor. Outside, they howled as they heard him opening the door. "'I'm coming out, you bastards!' screamed his mind. He jerked open the door and shot the first one in the face. The man went spinning back off the porch, and two women came at him, their white arms spread to enfold him. He watched their bodies jerk as the bullet struck them and shoved them both aside, firing his guns into their midst. He kept firing the pistols until they were both empty. Then he stood on the porch, clubbing them with insane blows, losing his mind almost completely when the same ones he'd shot came rushing at him again. And when they tore the guns from his hands, he used his fists and elbows and butted with his head. It wasn't until the flaring pain of having his shoulder slashed open that he realized what he was doing and how hopeless it was. Knocking aside two women, he backed towards the door. A man's arm locked around his neck. He lurched forward, bending at the waist, and toppled the man over his head into the others. He jumped back into the doorway, gripped both sides of the frame, and kicked out, sending them crashing down the porch steps. Before they could get at him again, he slammed the door in their faces and dropped the heavy bar into its slots. Robert Neville stood in the cold blackness of his house, listening to the vampire's scream. He stood against the wall, clubbing slowly at the plaster, tears streaming down his cheeks. Everything was gone. Everything. Virginia, he sobbed, 
Virginia. Virginia. After two long months, the house was finally livable again, even more so than before, in fact, for he had finally soundproofed the walls. Now they could scream and howl all they wanted, and he didn't have to listen to them. He especially liked not having to listen to Ben Cortman anymore. It had all taken time and work. First of all was the matter of a new car. That had been more difficult than he'd imagined. He had to get over to Santa Monica to the only station wagon store he knew of. They were the only cars he had any experience of, and this didn't seem quite the time to start experimenting. He couldn't walk to Santa Monica, so he had to try using one of the many cars parked in the neighborhood. But most of them were inoperative for one reason or another. A dead battery, no gasoline, flat tires. Finally, in a garage about a mile from the house, he found a car he could get started, and he drove quickly to Santa Monica to pick up another station wagon. He put a new battery in it, filled its tank, put gasoline drums in the back, and drove home. He got back to the house about an hour before sunset. He made sure of that. Luckily, the generator had not been ruined. The vampires apparently had no idea of its importance to him. So except for a torn wire or two and a few cudgel blows, they had left it alone. He managed to fix it the morning after the attack and keep his food from spoiling. He was grateful for that, because he was sure there were no places left where he could get more frozen foods now that electricity was gone from the city. The washing machine they had ruined beyond repair, forcing him to replace it. But that wasn't hard. The worst part was mopping up all the gasoline they'd spilled. Inside, he had repaired the cracked plaster and had almost enjoyed the work. It gave him something to lose himself in, something to pour all the energy of his still pulsing fury into. It broke the monotony of his daily task, the carrying away of the bodies, the repairing of the house's exterior, the hanging of garlic. He drank sparingly during those days, managing to pass almost an entire day without a drink. His appetite increased, and he gained four pounds while losing a little belly. He even slept nights. For a day or so, he had played with the idea of moving to a lavish hotel suite, but the thought of all the work he'd have to do to make it habitable changed his mind. No. He was all set in the house. Now he sat in the living room wondering how and where to begin his investigation of the vampires and their condition. He knew a few basic details, but these were only landmarks above the basic earth of cause. The answer lay in something else, probably in some fact he was aware of but did not adequately appreciate. But what? Maybe the answer lay in the past, in some obscure crevice of memory. Go back then, he told his mind, 
go back. It tore his heart out to go back, but he did. There had been another dust storm during the night. High, spinning winds had scoured the house with grit, driving it through the cracks, leaving a hair-thin layer of dust across all the surfaces, settling in their hair and clogging up their pores. Half the night he'd lain awake, trying to single out the sound of Virginia's labored breathing, but he couldn't hear anything above the shrieking sound of the storm. He'd never got used to the dust storms. They had never come regularly enough to adapt to. Whenever they came, he spent a restless night and went to the plant the next day with jaded mind and body. Now there was Virginia to worry about, too. She was lying on her back and staring at the ceiling. "'What's the matter?' he mumbled. She didn't answer. "'Honey?' Her eyes moved slowly to him. Nothing, she said. Go to sleep. How do you feel? The same. Well, he said, turning on his side, eyes already closed. The alarm went off at 6.30. Usually Virginia pushed in the stop, but when she failed to, he reached over and did it himself. She was still on her back, staring. What is it? he asked worriedly. I don't know, she said. I just can't sleep. You look pale, he said. I know. I look like a ghost. Don't get up, he said. I'm not going to pamper myself, she said. Go ahead. Get dressed. I'll be all right. Before getting dressed, he checked Kathy's room. She was still asleep her small, blonde head motionless on the pillow. He ran a finger across the top of the tent he'd erected over her bed and drew it away, gray with dust. I wish these damn storms would end, he said as he entered the kitchen. He stopped talking. Usually Virginia was at the stove turning eggs or French toast. Today she was sitting at the table. Sweetheart, if you don't feel well, go back to bed. I can fix my own breakfast, he told her. I'm sorry, I was just resting, she said slowly. Stay there, I'm not helpless. I'd like to know what this is going around. Half the people in the block have it, she said. Maybe it's some kind of virus. She shook her head. I don't know. Between the storms and the mosquitoes and everyone being sick, life is rapidly becoming a pain, he said. He sat down across from her. You'll call up Dr. Bush today, he asked. I will. She waved one hand weakly in front of her face. What is it, he asked. A mosquito, she said with a grimace. Or entering the age of the insect, he said. It's not good. They carry diseases, she said. I hope to hell we're not breeding a race of superbugs, he said. 
You remember that strain of giant grasshoppers they found in Colorado? Maybe the insects are mutating, jumping over several evolutionary steps, developing along lines they might not have followed at all if it weren't for... The bombings, she said. Maybe. Well, they're causing the dust storms. They're probably causing a lot of things. She sighed wearily. And they say we won the war. Nobody won it, he said. The mosquitoes won it. I guess they did, he said. Is there a newspaper? she asked. In the living room. Anything new in it? No, same old stuff. It's all over the country. They haven't been able to find the germ yet. She bit her lower lip. Nobody knows what it is. Everybody's got an idea from germ warfare on down. Do you think that's it? The war's over, he said. Bob, she said suddenly, do you think you should go to work? He smiled helplessly. What else can I do? We have to eat. He reached across the table and felt how cold her hand was. Honey, it'll be all right, he said. Do you think I should send Kathy to school? Unless the health authorities say schools have to close, I don't see why we should keep her home. She's not sick. Now you stay in the house today and in bed. I will, she said. He patted her hand. Outside the car horn sounded. Goodbye, he said, kissing her on the cheek. Goodbye, she said. Be careful. He moved across the lawn, gritting his teeth at the residue of dust in the air. He could smell it as he walked. Morning, he said, getting into the car and pulling the door shut behind him. Good morning, said Ben Cortman. All right. What now? Thinking of the past had revealed nothing. Only talk of insect carriers and virus, and they weren't the causes. He was sure of it. The past had brought something else, though. Pain at remembering. Every recalled word had been like a knife blade twisting in him. Old wounds had been reopened with every thought of her. He'd finally had to stop, eyes closed, fists clenched, trying desperately to accept the present on its own terms and not yearn with his very flesh for the past. But only enough drinks to stultify introspection had managed to drive away the sorrow of remembrance. He focused his eyes. All right, damn it, he told himself. Do something. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.